we begin together this morning, you'll notice in your bulletin a multicolored insert. I'd like you to take that out, please. Go ahead and take that out, and you can take out the sermon handout as well. Kind of keep them both balanced there. This insert is designed to be placed in the flyleaf of your Bible so that you can have it with you. You could use it as a bookmark or whatever but that you'd have it with you in this upcoming year, ready for reference. Four years ago, the elders spent a considerable amount of time meeting, praying, talking, and thinking together as to what direction they believed that God would have us go as a fellowship. The result of that rather lengthy endeavor was a mission statement that appears in the front of your bulletin diligently pursuing Christ and courageously proclaiming Him, as well as a set of five core values which are duplicated for you here on this colored insert, and a 10-year strategic ministry plan designed to help us by the grace of God to achieve the twin goals of evangelism and church planting that we believe that God would have for us as a fellowship. So here we are, second Sunday in January, a brand new year, and what I want to do this morning is just take time out from our study of the book of Romans and review these core values, to review them. And in particular, I want to to review with you the fourth value, daring to minister by faith. That's the one where there's the guy hanging upside down by uh, a thread. It's important we do this from time to time to come back to first things. And the reason why it's important is because it is very easy to inadvertently assume that busyness is the goal. In the busyness of life, the busyness of ministry, it's it's very easy to to sort of... uh, inadvertently get drawn aside into thinking that there's somehow the busyness itself is the whole reason we're doing what we're doing. That this is the purpose is just to stay incredibly busy. Well, busyness is not the goal of your life. It is not the goal of this fellowship. It may be the means to the goals, but it is not the goal itself. Last year, by the way, we did the same thing. We took a Sunday, in fact it was the second Sunday of January last year, and we concentrated on core value number two, determined to obey the Bible. But this year, in light of all that's going on, both nationally and internationally, it seems appropriate to take the time this year to talk with you about faith. So that's what I want to do this morning, is I want to talk with you about faith. Legend has it that a man was lost in the desert and dying of thirst when he stumbled upon a ramshackle, weather-beaten old shack. Looking around, he found a place to get a little shade and he sat and he pondered his situation. As he glanced around, he saw a pump about 15 feet away. The pump was old and rusty 
And it looked like it hadn't been used in years. Stumbling over to it, the man grabbed the handle and he began to pump it up and down, but nothing came out. Devastated, he staggered back from the pump and upon returning to his spot under the tree, he noticed an old jug lying on the ground under a small mesquite tree nearby. Picking up the jug and wiping off years of dirt and dust from the outside of the jug, he, he read a message that was inscribed on the side of the jug. The message was, you have to prime the pump with all the water in this jug, my friend. P.S. Be sure you fill the jug again before you leave. The man popped the cork out of the jug and sure enough, it was almost full of water. Suddenly, he was in a quandary. Do I drink the warm water in an attempt to quench my thirst? Or do I chance it by pouring it into this old rusty pump? What if this inscription on the side of the jug is nothing but a cruel joke? What to do? Reluctantly, he decided to take the risk. He decided to take the risk by pouring the water into the pump in hopes of obtaining cool, fresh water from below ground. Immediately after pouring the water into the pump, he grabbed the old rusty handle and he began to pump it up and down vigorously, but all it yielded was squeaks. Desperately, he continued to pump the handle and, and soon a little bit of water dribbled out. Then the dribble turned into a stream and then finally into a gusher. To his relief, out poured cold, fresh water. More than enough to satisfy his thirst. After drinking his fill, the man filled the jug and pressed the cork back into place and, and he added this little note to the inscription on the side of the jug. Believe me, it really works. You have to give it all away before you can get anything back. Well, that little story brings us to the heart of our fourth core value this morning, daring to minister by faith. Daring to minister by faith. Let me just review very quickly with you these core values and in particular, what is a core value? A core value, and this is in your handout, is the deepest, most constant, most passionate Beliefs and visible commitments that drive either an individual or an organization. It's why people do what they do. It's not what they say as the reason for what they do. It is the real reason for doing what they do. We have five core values that we have identified and that by the grace of God drive all that we do here. Many of you are relatively new to this fellowship. You've come since the time these core values were hammered out almost four years ago. So it's good for you to be reminded, or not even reminded, but to be informed 
why, does, why do Foothill do things the way we do them? Is there a rhyme? Is there a reason? What's going on? Well, here they are for you in your handout. By the grace of God, we are devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is what drives us. It is our devotion to Christ. Beyond that, by the grace of God, we are determined to obey the Bible. It is the Bible is our source of authority. It is why we do what we do and why we don't do some things. By the grace of God, we want to be dedicated to prayer. That is, understanding that the ministry advances on its knees as the people of God passionately implore God to pour out His grace. Fourth value, the one I want to talk with you about more this morning. It is by the grace of God we want to dare to minister by faith. Daring to minister by faith. And then finally, by the grace of God, it is our desire to develop disciples to reach the nations. Developing disciples to reach the nations. Faith. Faith is the essence of the redeemed life. It is the essence of what it means to be a child of God. We were saved through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. We are saved through faith. We, as followers of Christ, live by faith. We live by faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. We must minister by faith. Galatians 6, 9 and 10, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men and especially to those or of the household of faith. We minister by faith. But what is faith? What is faith? Well, the writer to the Hebrew Christians in Hebrews 11 and verse 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is not a formal definition of faith. But there in those two parallel thoughts, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, we have a powerful description of what faith really is. Faith is a dynamic certainty about what God has promised us. It is the conviction that what is future and as yet unseen, we are certain that it will come about by the promise of God. It's not the power of our belief that makes faith powerful. It is the power of the God in whom we place faith that makes these things a certainty. So this morning I want to look with you at three commitments that express what it means to dare to minister by faith. Three commitments that express what does it mean to dare to minister by faith so that we might realign our priorities as we come into the new year. They're there for you in both your handout and in that insert. 
Here at Foothill, daring to minister by faith means that we are committed to biblical ministry. We are committed to visionary ministry and we are committed to strategic ministry. Biblical, visionary, strategic ministry. That is what it means here to dare to minister by faith. Let's unpack these one by one. First, daring to minister by faith, FBC is committed to biblical ministry that measures effectiveness according to God's Word and God's promises, not human methods or successes. Open your Bibles to John chapter 17. John 17. If you're using a pew Bible, page 1081. Biblical ministry that measures effectiveness according to God's Word and God's promises, not human methods or successes. Let me ask you a question this morning. How do you judge the success of a ministry? How do you go about judging the success of a ministry? Is it the size of the crowd? Is it the wealth of the operation? Is it the popularity of the message? Are these the means by which you judge its success? If these are the measures, then the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was a colossal failure. A colossal failure. Yet we know it wasn't a failure, was it? Look how Jesus describes His ministry here at the very end in John 17. He is shortly to return to the Father via the cross. And notice what He says. Look at verse 4. He says, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. I have accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Did he leave a large crowd of popularity behind him? Hardly. A handful of frightened disciples hiding in an upper room. Was the ministry of Christ measured by the size of its bank accounts, the wealth of its holdings? Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Was it measured by the popularity of his message? We will not have this man to rule over us. We have no king but Caesar. By all the typical worldly standards by which ministries evaluate themselves, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was a colossal flop, it was a failure. Yet he says, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. He's accomplished, he says, the task. Well, what was that task? What had the Father sent him to do? Verse 6. I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have come to know 
that everything You have given me is from You. For the words which You gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from You, and they believed that You have sent me. What was the work of Christ? It was to show the Father. To reveal the Father. To a group of men chosen by the Father to be His spokesman in the world. Jesus said, mission accomplished. I've done what You've sent me to do. I've been faithful to the end, the task You've given me to do. You know, the Apostle Paul expresses similar kinds of sentiments at the end of his life. Despite the setbacks, despite the disappointments, despite the defections of various ministry partners, despite the failures that he experienced, at the end of his life, he is quite confident in the quality of his work too. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. When I look back on my life, I have accomplished what I have been sent to do. Beloved, if we measure our ministerial success and effectiveness based on typical human measures, the appearance, they are appearance-based measures and they're at, they're at best faulty, then we would have to judge the majority of the servants of God as having been a failure. I mean, think about Isaiah. Go and preach, Isaiah, Isaiah 6, his commissioning, to a people who will not listen. Jeremiah, I want you to go and preach to a people who will not listen. Ezekiel, I want you to go and preach to a people who will not listen. Popular? No. Wealthy? No. Sizable crowds to gather and hear them speak? No. Yet each of them and many more stand in a long line of faithful servants of God. Why is it? Why is it that God's way of doing things so frequently contradicts and conflicts with our own? Why is that? Why is it that the way God measures things and the way we measure things so seldom line up? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, page 1141. 1 Corinthians 1, I think, gives some insight into this. First Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. 
By the way, we would immediately look at an, or an organization like that and we would say, what's wrong with them? But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not that He might nullify the things that are. Here's the secret. That no man should boast before God. Why does God do it differently than we would? The answer very simply is, is because God will not share credit with anyone. Anyone. God intentionally sets things up so that man cannot take credit for the success. That it can only be of God. That only He gets the glory. That's the way God operates. By the grace of God, beloved, we are committed to pursuing ministry here. Ministry that is either explicitly required or implicitly and necessarily so demanded by Scriptures. Regardless of its popularity, regardless of its observable human success. Counting noses is not the means by which we judge the effectiveness of something. But at the same time, at the same time, we need to be open to various ministry opportunities that are not specifically spoken of in Scripture. Those things that are explicitly required or necessarily implied, those things we are for sure going to do. But there are other things. Other things that are not specifically spoken of. For example, preaching on Sunday is explicitly commanded by Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Preaching is explicitly commanded. Having a Christmas outreach concert is not. And therein lie the difference. So we will engage in non-explicit ministries, but we are still dependent upon God's grace and God's wisdom so that we don't inadvertently make the mistake of evaluating the success of those ministries based on worldly standards. And it's not easy. It's not easy. We had a two-day Christmas concert here that was absolutely wonderful. The community came out. We believe that the Lord would have us continue to do that, but we need to be most careful as we go down this path. That the counting of crowds through the door in and of itself is not the final measure of God's approval or our commitment to doing this. We need wisdom. We need grace. We need prayer as a fellowship. Daring to minister by faith, we are committed to biblical ministry that measures effectiveness according to God's Word and God's promises, not human methods or successes. Secondly, 
daring to minister by faith, FBC is committed to visionary ministry. Visionary ministry that is not limited by human appraisals of risk or reward, but believing God to accomplish far more than we could ask or think. We don't want to limit the ministry we do by the risk-reward calculations that we also frequently make. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Paul says there, Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you believe that? Do you believe your God can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you ask or think? Or are the outside limits your imagination? Your faith? The Bible is very, very explicit about commending the people of God who dare to follow God despite the odds. And the Bible is also critical of those who allow their human appraisals of risk and return to hold them back. Let me say that again. The Bible is explicit in commending the people of God who dare to follow God despite the odds. And it is very critical of those who allow their human appraisals of risk and reward to hold them back. For example, Numbers chapter 13, verses 25 and following. You'll remember this story. There were spies sent out into the land. Two of them came back, Joshua and Caleb. And they said, listen, this is a difficult place. There are scary guys there. But our God has given us this land, so let's go take possession of it. And there were the other ten spies who came back and said, it's a good land. It is indeed a land of milk and honey. Look, we got this big old bunch of grapes. We come lugging back on a pole for you to look at. But there are giants in the land and we are like grasshoppers in their sight. We dare not enter. You know what happened to those ten. And all those who align. The great faith chapter. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Abel worshipped by faith. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up 
so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Enoch walked by faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, the writer says. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Then we have the example of Noah in verse 7 who worked by faith. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. We have the case of Abraham who wagered by faith, giving up his secure inheritance in Ur of the Chaldees in order to wander in a land that God would lead him to. By faith, verse 8, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was going to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And on and on we could go. By faith, by faith, by faith. As the writer says in verse 32, what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of these others. Time will fail me too. It is by faith, by faith. Beloved, many of us use pro and con analysis, risk reward evaluations in order to make decisions. This is a typical business model. Take a look at the opportunity. List all the positives on one side. List all the negatives on the other side and then try to make your decision. Now, there may be some help in these methods. and In fact, I think there is. But there's also some inherent flaws in this process that we need to take into account. First, it is impossible to accurately weigh the true risks and the true rewards with regard to a given situation because we don't know the future. And see, because we don't know the future, we don't really know what all the risks are and we don't know what all the rewards are. It's an old expression that says that the battle plan never survives first contact with the enemy. They get a vote too. The other inherent flaw in this risk return pro con analysis is that it just leaves God out of the question. I mean, walk around Jericho seven times? What kind of a pro con analysis would that yield? William Carey, the great pioneer missionary to India, he said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. That's the pioneering spirit. That's the daring to minister by faith. That's the walk around Jericho seven times kind of attitude. 
Now, a person can legitimately ask, with, with all the ministry possibilities that are out there, how do you decide, how do we as a fellowship decide which ones to pursue? And that's a legitimate question. There are a lot of ministry opportunities, and, and new ones come up every single week. So how do we know? How do we say yes to one and no to the other? What's the basis? We have to be strategic. We have to be strategic. We have to be focused. Number three, daring to minister by faith. FBC is committed to strategic ministry. Strategic ministry. Ministry that identifies critical ministry priorities which require planning and active dependence upon God's provision to accomplish His purposes through the church. We can't do everything. We just can't do everything. We can't meet every legitimate ministry need that arises. We can't. We have, to, we have to assess our own gifts, our own talents as a body. We have to look at God's explicit priorities. We have to evaluate our own spiritual interests. What are the things that interest us? What, are, what, what causes our heart to beat fast when we think about it? And we combine all those together in prayer and and a plan. A plan that gives ministry direction. So that we know where we're going as a, a fellowship. So that we can say no to this and yes to this. For us, as a fellowship, we said our, priority, our priorities are twofold. It is number one to make the gospel available to everyone in the city of Upland every year beginning in the year 2010. That's next year, by the way. And to plant four churches. This is where we're going. This is what we're going to do together by the grace of God. Not for our glory, but for His. So that means that things that, that don't advance this cause, we can't do. They may be very good, very valid. They're, we're not criticizing anyone's ministry. We're not saying that this is not a valid ministry. We're just saying it's not our ministry. Our ministry is to make the gospel available to everyone in the city of Upland every year beginning by the year 2010. Our ministry is to plant four churches. That's what we're about. Now in all this planning process, we do need to heed the words of James, brother of Lord. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow... We shall go to such and such a city and we shall spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You're like the steam above a cup of coffee. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. By the way, in context, the right thing to do here is to live under the providence of God. So all of our planning, all of our strategy sessions, all of our thinking has to be done with a healthy respect and appreciation for the providence of God. The providence of God. Now lest you think this idea of strategic planning is, is somehow just a, a business technique or a management, something you learned at a management seminar... Allow me to take a few minutes and show you how strategic the greatest missionary church planter the world has ever known really was. The Apostle Paul. So let me take you back to Romans chapter 1, page 1125. Romans chapter 1, we'll just dip our toe in here beginning at verse 9. Paul's writing here to a church he has never visited before. To people who, for the most part, he has never met before. So he says to them, beginning in verse 9, For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps, by na- uh, if perhaps now, by, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Then flip over to chapter 15. He didn't want to lay it all on him at one time. Page 1139, chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. Paul picks the thought up again, and he says, For this reason I have often been hindered from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem to serve the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Paul says, I have been wanting to come a long time. I have been planning to come. I have been thinking about coming. I have been strategizing about coming. I have probably even checked into to, uh, boat schedules to try to figure out how I'm going to get there. But I keep getting hindered. And by the way, I want to come there because I want to be with you. I want to enjoy your fellowship with one another. And by the way, I need money in order to go to Spain. And while I'm there, I would expect that you would provide it. That is strategic planning. That is strategic planning. You can go back to the left to Acts chapter 16. Page 1108. 
Acts 16, beginning in verse 5. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. And they were passing through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia. And the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And then he receives the Macedonian call. But notice... They knew where they were going. They were trying to go in one direction and they were cut off. So then they're trying to go in another direction. They didn't just sit there and flip a coin and say, okay, where do you want to go today? If you were to take the time to get a map and plot these cities, you would see that they are very strategic cities that leads Paul into the inner regions of what is modern day Turkey. Paul knew exactly where he wanted to go. He would go to one city. He would pass over the other city. Because he was being strategic about where he was going. He spent three years in Ephesus, right? Running a Bible school in order he might train missionary church planters to send them out into the interior region and plant churches at Colossae and many other places. Very strategic about his ministry. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, page begin in verse 5. Paul says, But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. By the way, he wants more money. Okay? For I do not wish to see you now in just passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Which is a verse that I really like. Okay, a wide door for effective service, and there are many adversaries. But notice again, Paul's saying, I'm going here, I intend to stop by and see you, if I can stay long enough to get money from you. If I can't, I'm going to pass on by, and I'll be back later. That's my translation. But the point of it is, he's thinking ahead. I'm going here, I want to go there, I want to do this, I need resources to do that. This is a place where I can get them. And we're going to move on to this next place. He's being very, very strategic about what he does. So strategic planning is very much a part of what it means to dare to minister by faith. Now, because many of you are relatively new. In fact, let me just go ahead and try this. In the last three and a half years, how many of you are new to the fellowship? Last three and a half years. Okay, good. Well, let me give you a little history. Let me give you a little history. Just kind of help you with context. Evidences of daring to minister by faith in the last three and a half years. How have we been doing? And this is not... We start to say this right at the beginning. This is not to congratulate ourselves with. This is to rejoice in what God has done. Okay? You agree to that? This is to rejoice in what God has done. People movements. People movements that display what it means to dare to minister by faith. In the last three and a half years, we've sent one pastoral couple, Dennis and Don Wilson, from this church where they had resided for nine years, ministering effectively among us, up to Nampa, Idaho, to plant a church. 
That church, within 18 months, by the grace and glory of God, became self-governing, self-propagating, and self-sustaining. It is now an independent fellowship. Simultaneous with sending Dennis and Don Wilson to Idaho, we disrupted the lives of Art and Kim Nakamura, who were effectively ministering on the other side of the world in Pune, India, by calling them home to minister among us and to reorganize, to focus, and to stimulate our efforts internationally. One day, they, life was going this way. The next day, they got a phone call from me, and their whole life was messed up, and it's been messed up ever since. <laughs> but it's, it takes faith to tear up from an existing ministry and go to another one. Jim and Janet Wine. 25 years with the gas company, a good career, effectively ministering in this body, being used of the Lord in mighty ways, and then we prevailed upon him to chuck it all and join the staff as the associate pastor of evangelism in order to plan, direct, and motivate our efforts at local outreach, daring to minister by faith, midlife career changes. Steve and Karen Hadanis. Similar circumstances. Leaving a career in the aerospace industry to oversee, facilitate, and expand the Iwana ministry here in Southern California. Daring to minister by faith. Leif Jensen. From a career in architecture to attend the Master's Seminary and become the first church planting intern here at Foothill Bible Church. Promise Vaughn. Involved in a nursing career here in the United States and by the grace of God, takes that halfway around the world to Papua New Guinea, there to minister for a year in a nursing context and pray and wait upon the Lord to see if He might be calling her further into international service in the area of Bible translation, daring to minister by faith. Young Michael Lug, our newest one, from Seattle, Washington, where life is good, I've been told. I've never visited there. Although they have lots of snow and rain, I think. But here to uh, attend seminary and to bring leadership and energy to the student ministries. All of these people, their lives have been disrupted. They've been changed by, by uh, intervention of God into their lives. Various ministry efforts in the last three and a half years. The Upland Campaign. We used to take short-term missions trips down to the Baja of Mexico. And then we, we looked at that and we kept saying, we go all the way down there and we work really hard, but we don't seem to accomplish much. And there's no follow-up opportunities for discipleship at all. So Brother Jim comes up with the idea, why don't we do a short-term missions trip, you know, two and a half miles south of here. And so the Upland Campaign, which the Lord has used. Hope Street. The outreach down on Hope Street, an outgrowth of the Upland Campaign, where every Saturday afternoon into the second year now, a handful of committed people go and minister there amongst the residents of that particular part of our community, daring to minister by faith. And I know what the residents are thinking. They want to know, is this real? Is this sustainable? Is this just a, a thing like a drive-by ministry opportunity where you stay a little while and then you leave? Or do you really love us? Do you really care? And are you going to stay? 
Outreach Point Alpha, an apartment in another part of our community whereby we can have a base of operations for English as a second, second language, neighborhood presence. Los Peregrinos, new Spanish-speaking Sunday school class, a simultaneous translation of the morning message into Spanish each and every week now. The Heritage Senior Care Facility, Bible studies, evangelism, J.P. College Christian Club, Mount Sac, new work, crusade work there, the Claremont Bible Fellowship. All of these new works, the, the, the work there going on at Cal Poly Pomona, in which a number of you are involved, these are all what it means to dare to minister by faith. We're now, we're now making inroads into the, into the college communities that surround us. For years we were praying and hoping and, and wondering, was there any way God said, yes, there is a way for those who will dare to minister by faith. Got a little epilogue here in my notes. Okay, so epilogue. Why do we include the word daring? Why do we include this word daring in the statement of the value? I mean, look at that again. Why, why couldn't it just said to minister by faith other than We'd be missing a D and it wouldn't alliterate. <laughs> Why don't we just say we're committed to minister by faith? Because daring says something. The word daring points to the reality that unless you risk something, then you're not exercising faith. See, something has to be at risk. There has, to be, there has to be a daring aspect to it. There has to be this possibility of failure attached. We can talk a lot about ministering by faith, but, but unless we're willing to engage in ministry both personally and corporately, the success of which can only be attributed to God, then we are not yet daring to minister by faith. Specifically, specifically, that means going beyond our resources. Going beyond our resources. Going beyond our monetary resources. How are we going to pay for this? If it's all in the bank up front, there is no element of risk. Emotionally, going beyond our emotional resources. These people are too hard to love. How are we ever going to love people from this part of our community? Going beyond our physical resources. I'm too tired to help. I can't do it. I'm too tired. Going beyond our resources experientially. We've never done this before. I tell my kids I don't like to go anywhere that I've never been before. You think about that a minute, it's pretty limited. <laughs> but that's kind of the experience of many churches, right? We've never done it before, so therefore, we don't do it. But if we're going to dare to minister by faith, that means we're going to have to do things we've never done before, like planting churches. It means going beyond our resources organizationally. 
We don't have the manpower. If we send out key leaders for this ministry, we're going to have gigantic holes. We can't have that. And so we never go. When the Spirit of God said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas, to the ministry which I have called them, there were five key leaders in the church at Antioch. Two of them were now going to leave. That's 40% of the leadership team gone. Daring to minister by faith. It means we have to go beyond our resources temperamentally. It means I'm out of my comfort zone. Out of my comfort zone. I, I like things predictable, and I will admit that to you. I do like things very, very predictable. So when things are unpredictable, it makes me uncomfortable. But if I'm always comfortable temperamentally, where's the risk? Where's the faith? How daring are you? That's the question to walk away with this morning. How daring are you? Do you have to see it all in black and white? All the T's crossed, all the I's dotted, answers to all the what ifs, resources in the bank, or you won't do it? There's no faith in that. There's no faith in that at all. Not foolhardy. Not foolhardy. But stretching yourself out upon an omnipotent God such that when stuff happens, He's the only one who can receive the glory. You can't take any for yourself. Let's pray. Our Father God, as we go into this new year together, may You strengthen our faith. Our Father, we know that faith is, as it were, a muscle that responds to use. That is, progressively it is, it is strengthened by being called upon incrementally. And so, our Father, we pray that You would do that in our lives individually and corporately as a body. That You would call upon us this year to extend ourselves out upon You. To climb out on the limb, as it were, and even to begin sawing. Believing that You are the God of the universe. That all that is, You have created. That You sustain it moment by moment. And that You are working out Your great and perfect plan of the ages in which we are by grace but participants. Please strengthen our faith, our Father. We confess it is weak and flabby. Whatever You bring to us this year, Father, let us receive it with gratitude. To ask You to do something among us this year that causes ears to buzz and tongues to wag. 
that it would be so unbelievable that it could not be attributed to anything but you alone. Pour forth your grace. Put yourself on display. For your name's sake. Amen. I've kept you long and I apologize. So Ron, we're going to not do that last song. If you will give me but a moment to beat the rush. And I will greet you at the door. God bless you.